and welcome to another episode of Gas It Out. My name is Gavin Emmett and joining me from Paradise Island on the Isle of Man is Neil Hodgson. Actually looks beautiful where Neil Hodgson is. I've got this beautiful big uh, shot of him in his front room uh, over there on the Isle of Man and uh, where it's absolutely chucking it down here in Leeds. It looks like it's sunny there, which I cannot believe for starters. Uh, and uh, you can, if you are just listening to this on the Auto podcast, you can come and watch this on YouTube or on Facebook, just search for Gas It Out. We're seeing a beautiful shot over the uh, sea there. That's Douglas Bay, that, that Gavin Emmett. That's not a bad view, Neil Hodgson, I have to say. No, it's lovely. There is, there is not a better place in the world when the sun shines than the Isle of Man. And it's one of those days, a little bit grey this morning, but stunning now. And I've, I'm in Onken, up on the cliff edge, overlooking Douglas Bay, and it doesn't get much better than this, got to say. I just want to quickly uh, mention a couple of things that I had to mention before we uh, crack on. We've got John Hopkins, a guest. I mean, that's exciting enough because he has tail upon tail upon tail upon tail. Um, we do have, you might be able to see on my shoulder, some Triumph goodies to give away. Right, I want that's to right. say it early on. Uh, we've got some Triumph goodies today, and what it's going to be is later on in this programme, we're going to come up with a hashtag. That's all it's going to be. And what we want you to do is retweet this show, whether it's the podcast version or the YouTube version, just retweet it and put the hashtag in. That's all we want. But it's not going to come up until later on in the show. All right, how's that? And we'll send out some Triumph goodies to the winners. We'll pick them random out of a hat or maybe out of one of Neil Hodgson's helmets. They're very, very big, uh, especially because he's had to have them specially made, actually, after last week in MotoGP um, where he called the last lap. Ooh, I'm Mr. Clever, eh? Hey, Gav, I've been commentating now, I think it's the, I'm in the third year. It's about time I called one perfect, isn't it? You know, but uh, it, it, was, uh, it was interesting, wasn't it? it was certainly, a, certainly a, a major talking point. You know, Paulo Spargo about to win his first MotoGP race, leading on the penultimate lap. He'd got a gap of 0.3 of a second. But the, the talking point was, as he came out the last corner, his team put on his pit board, pit board plus zero the problem is from a rider's standpoint and I've been in that situation before if you see plus zero on your board and it's a last lap of a race you know you've got to go defensive now if you ride defensive you can't go as fast as if you ride on the normal flowing racing line it'll probably cost you about half a second so the fact that he went defensive and the, the nature of Austria anyway is a track it's got those long straights with heavy braking zones means that going defensive it is definitely going to cost you a lot of time and it did and uh, as it turned out I was bloody right Gav who'd have I thought mean, it once in what is it yeah once in or... yeah yeah I think it is yeah do you know what? I've got I've got two um commentary bits like if I ever had to do a like um CV. like clip up yeah like a CV like you know um I'd have the one where Marcus crashed at Valencia on uh, I think it's turn four. I sort of predicted it. I'm going, oh, it's really cold conditions. This is on this track. If you attack, uh, the problem is when you get to the first left hander, it's really cold. Just watch this now as Marcus approaches it. Watch it. If he's going to crash, he'll crash here. And he did. And it was like, oh, that was that. That's still my favourite comment. You know what? The, the thing moment. for me, it's like you know what you're on about, right? And everyone <laughs> at home thinks that he knows what he's on about, whereas I know you're just winging it. Yeah, it's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's, um, I mean, percentage-wise, I'd probably say it's 90% bullshit and 10% experience, knowledge, you know. 
been there, I, done that. I think so. Just the ninety percent. I just think that they've been there, done that. Might have counted or something. To be honest. Where? Where? I'll take the night. I'll take the ninety percent bullshit. But imagine this, Gav. You are one hundred percent bullshit, which I love. Yeah, I you mean, know. That's, I've made a career yeah. out of it. <laughs> made a career out of it. Hey, I, I just think, you know, I spoke to Polis Bargro after the race and I don't think he realised, I, I think when he'll watch it back, he'll see, won't he? Because he, even in Park Ferme, he'll have just thought, well, they're on my shoulder, that sort of thing. But he got asked by, by every TV station about it, didn't he? And uh, I think when he, we might see a different poll or different reaction to the race when you speak to him next time. Does that, is that fair to say? Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and that's why I said what I said, because in my experience, when that had happened to me, I'd watched races back on television and said to my team, from now on, I want the exact what the gap is, mm. not what your interpretation is, not what you think I might want to see. Oh, do you know what? It's the last lap. You might want to see plus zero because it's only a 0.3 gap and it's the last lap. So let's you know, make sure he keep, keeps him on his toes. No, you don't want that. What you want is the truth, and then you can calculate how you're going to, you know, handle handle it, deal with that situation. That's that's how I saw it anyway. So funny, got a laugh, haven't you, Gav? Well, it was, it, what, you know, it, it, it was so interesting, it. though, wasn't it? What? I mean, we are having um, the most interesting year, aren't we? For for a while, look, we think. In fact, the stats were before the week. That we've had the closest races. I've had, I think nine out of the of the ten closest races, top fifteen wise, have been in the last three or four years. So it's a fact that MotoGP is closer than ever. But all these things thrown into the mix, like Mark being injured, you think that's the big headline story? No, I'm going to give you Yamaha engine failures. Uh, no, I'm going to give you crashes of uh, like to Rince and Crusher who also injured themselves. Oh, Fabio Quartararo is going to win back to back races. Oh, and then. Um, Brad Binder on a KTM, he's going to win as a rookie. And, and you just get story after story. And, yeah. Oh, no, two satellite bikes are going to win races this year. What? Yeah, and one of them's a KTM satellite bike. And it, it's just fantastic. Yeah, and, well, in, in the team's championship, the number one team over the past God knows how many years will actually be sitting last. Repsol Honda, that team in the team championship is last. It's the worst team in the MotoGP paddock. Bizarre. It, it, it just, it's, it's, yeah, there's so many stories. Hey, hey, and obviously we've had Brad Binder and Hervé Pontural on here where both did, we had Frankie Morbidelli's been on the podium and... Yeah, best result some, he's ever had. Some, just yeah, saying. I'm yeah, not well. saying, but I'm just saying, Jake Dixon just got his best result in Grand Prix racing. Who yeah. was episode one? <sighs> Boom. Exactly. Boom. John McPhee having the best season he's ever had. Drop that one. Um, yeah, drop the mic. <laughs> it's all down to us, really. So, basically, if you want to If there'd have been have... a TT this year, McGuinness would have won. Yeah, clearly. Guy Martin would have, have also won. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but basically, if you want to be big time, get yourself on, gas it out. Um, I've got to uh, just do a quick one before we speak to John uh, to say thanks to Clampies. To Clampy, oh, yeah. actually, for his chilli sauce. Bad sauce. Hot sauce. Hot sauce. Good. Uh, sent it to us say thank you so we appreciate that thanks to uh, Clampy for that one for, for hey, do you know what it does what it says on the tin it's bloody hot sauce it's good though but it's like yeah, that, and the it's... sort of stuff that you get in the Caribbean isn't it it's like that yeah. fresher that sort of thing so yeah, yeah. cheers to Clampy for that um, also um, I've been doing a two wheels for life takeover I want to say that as well 
with lots of American stars. And um, you can go and watch all those back on Instagram. I just want to say it because some really good stuff in there. And Joe Roberts is the coolest kid, bar none, in the whole of MotoGP. I don't care. Whatever you tell me is not going to beat Joe Roberts being, honestly, he should be wearing like, those you know those like cool glasses and just going yeah he was I, I chatted to him so in between races him and Edgar Pons and Edgar Pons is quite you know he, they've gone off to northern Spain and they're off surfing just that's what they're doing yeah. time surfing for the week so it, he is though the Ben Bostrom of now you know the Ben Bostrom back in the day so in the late 90s early 2000s you've got Ben Bostrom there the Californian good looking surfer climber motocrosser and and do you know what? Enjoyed his racing, didn't take it too serious where he was obsessed, but was professional, but just enjoyed life. Talking of Californian good-looking roosters and uh, in, in Joe Roberts, we've got his mentor now who's just connecting to the audio. We have Hopper himself. John yeah, he's joining us. Can you hear us okay, Hopper? How you doing, mate? Yeah, not too bad. I finally got you there. I'm uh, I'm a little bit behind the uh, behind the times with uh, with the electronics. So I actually I don't have Zoom. Uh, I had to download it on my phone oh, here. Oh, sorry and, about uh, that. Oh, yeah, no, because I was I'm actually at my buddy's house, so I was uh, I was going to use his computer, and then it, I don't know, I don't know how it works, so <laughs> I finally just uh, downloaded it on my phone here, set it all up. But yeah, I got you guys. I'm uh, can hear oh, you that's now. That's good. Well, hey, John, it's good, it's, good, it, it's good to see you because last time I saw you is when we interviewed you on the grid in Austria and I laughed. <laughs> I don't need, you won't have heard my commentary. That it was actually the, the round. It was after, this wasn't weekend, it? wasn't it? Yeah, yeah this weekend. Yeah. I went, everybody we've spoke to so far, you know, they've got a mask on. We understand the rules. Yeah, the, the mask, the, the glasses. But, the... Yeah, but you looked, you looked like you're a fugitive, I tell you, right? Because <laughs> you, you got your hat pulled down, you've got big, big glasses on and a mask. I'm like, hang on a minute. Is he one of the, like, on the most wanted or something? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm I didn't know if it really was John Hopkins. I'm not sure it was. You know what I mean? It's one of the people, like a body double. <laughs> yeah, I was about ready to rob one of the guys from the uh, <laughs> for their bike, take it right that, off the grid. It no, made me it's laugh. funny, man. It like did. honestly, I don't know what's going on with society. Like, oh, it's gonna be, you know, if you had a guy walking into a shop with all, you know, with the crazy face masks and so forth, you know, less than a year ago, you would have yeah. been like, what the hell is this guy doing in here? And then, yeah. you know, now it's yeah, it's, it's the norm. It's yeah, I know, man. It's just the norm. Yeah, it's nuts. It's such a bizarre world. Can I just say, John, though, that interview on the grid, what you said, those words explaining of, you know, what, you, what you're what doing with Joe Roberts and basically the approach for this year, you know, your input was just absolutely perfect. You know, realistic goals, not putting too much pressure on yourself, trying to have fun. Yeah. It's so difficult, isn't it, when you get into Grand Prix racing and you can get lost really quickly. You can start to doubt yourself. You can put yourself uh, under way too much pressure. Away. It's got to be the next race. The next race, I've got to show everybody yeah. what I can do. And before you know it, you've worked your way down the spiral and it's not much fun, is it? No, not at all. And I mean, there are so many times where you can literally just chase your tail. And, you know, when you start chasing your tail, it is a downward spiral. And... uh 
Yeah, the unfortunate thing is, you know, got a lot of the guys, especially when you get coming over from America, where unfortunately the level is uh, a lot lower, you know, than what it is over here in in Europe at the moment, you know, and uh, when you come over with these unrealistic expectations, you know, like so many have just in the last decade, you know, that come over, you know, expecting to, you know, go out and, you know, they have that American, you know, pride and you know they want to go and put the american flag on the top of the podium but uh yeah unfortunately if you come into it with unrealistic expectations you know you're uh you're in for a rough ride you know and yeah. that's how it's been unfortunately for for joe over the last couple of years you know he struggled with the bike you know with the setting he, he was you know had a hard time on the ktm chassis it didn't really suit his his riding style I mean, a lot of people, I mean, besides, you know, Lekuona, he did a, a really good job on the KTM. He managed to make it work. He's one of those riders that, you know, can adapt on on some of the poor machinery. But, uh, you know, he had a teammate that was going out and, you know, consistently being ahead of him. And uh, I know how frustrating that can be. You know, the first person you want to beat is your teammate. And, uh, you know, if you're going and getting outshined by your teammate, you're not able to find, you know, a good setting and get the thing to work how you want it and get the results you want. It literally can just destroy you mentally, mm, you know, yeah. after putting your life into something. I mean, and that's what he's done. You know, he's, he's put his life into this sport and he has the goals and the dreams of, you know, being a, a MotoGP, you know, champion contender and, uh, you know, to, to be stuck and just literally at a, you know, a point scoring finish is like a good result and that is just oh it's so frustrating as a racer mm. when you you want to succeed and uh and get to the front but you've just literally got to take minor steps and you just yeah. got to read those realistic goals and you know once you do that's when you start making progress and start climbing the ladder and and making the uh the progress forward because otherwise it can be a rough rough road if you uh you're constantly let down and and have these unrealistic, like you said, expectations. Yeah. How how hard is it for you to do that, John? Because you know you you were forced to stop racing. Really, you wanted to continue, but your you you took so many beatings, or, or your body, you've been through so many operations. So to switch yeah. into that mode of of mentoring a young kid who we all know's got bagfuls of talent, but then trying to mold that. How hard is that to make that transition, knowing that you know deep down. I wish I was, you know, in some ways, I, I feel like I could have still been doing this kind of thing. Yeah, it was tough, man. It was, uh, it's been a rough couple of years, unfortunately, um, for me, just trying to find out what the hell I was going to do mm. life after racing, you know, sure. it, uh, it was a shock. Um, you know, I didn't have the, the pleasure of just being able to bow out on my own and, you know, say it was time, you know, I, I had every intention of continuing, you know, whether it was, you know, British Superbike or, you know, going back to America racing some more or even trying to make it back into World Superbike, you know, and, and even farther, you know, I still had those dreams and, and aspirations. And I still, you know, felt firmly within my head mentally that I mm. could do it. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, physically, I, uh, I just couldn't, I, I literally couldn't. I mean, I, I mean, not only the fact that my, my knee doesn't bend properly enough to be able to fit onto the bike, the fact that uh, after this last injury, I mean, I was uh, I was in the hospital in London for just over six weeks. Literally, uh, the only movement I had was being able to lift myself 
you know, with my arms on and off uh, a bedpan. You know, I had the nurses having to, you know, wipe my backside and you know <laughs> everything. I mean, it, it was, and I'm a private person, you know, I like- I was about to, Hang on, I was just about to say, so it wasn't all bad then. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I paid money for that. But, you know, that's another story. Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, a couple of them nurses were quite cute. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least my wife was happy because it wasn't her having to nurse. It wasn't her, Like yeah. normal, because she's, <laughs> she's done all the other injuries. But, uh, no, it was tough. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, being from America, you know, you literally have a, an ensuite, you know, in America. When you're in the hospital, you have this massive you know, plasma TV, your own mm. room, and, you know, you're fully customed out, you know, given you have insurance. But, uh, you know, NHS, it was, uh, I, I literally had a curtain around me within a room of about 10 people screaming through the night and just, you know, craziness and, uh, and six weeks of that. But uh, the toughest thing was having my kids come and visit me. And, uh, you know, I've always been a really active father, you know, with, with, playing with them nonstop running around and you know luckily I've been fortunate not to have a, a normal job where I'm away nine to five every day you know besides training hours so I would just uh, be playing with them nonstop and that's what they knew that was the norm me running around jumping around playing with them nonstop and so with them coming into the hospital and seeing me laid up and not understanding you know just wanting to play and get up and you know, have daddy be, you know, the, the normal playful daddy was, uh, was tough because they didn't understand it. And that's when I really kind of looked at my kind of future from that point, you know, I was going on 36, 37 operations already. And, uh, and I was just like, man, this is it. Like, I I can't, I just can't keep doing this to my body anymore. Like I, I am, you know, I suffer from it already and have done for the last, you know, five to 10 years. I mean, I wake up and, you know, on a cold day and I am like, I'm in so much pain, like crazy. And it, I mean, I have to keep moving constantly to stop from stiffening up. And I mean, you know, and I'm only going to get older, so I know it's, uh, it's only going to get worse, but. What have you broken, John? Just like, like from your feet to your head, just talk us through your career from, from schoolboy motocross up to today, what you've broken. Just so people Literally, can appreciate like, it. Like 10 to 20 breaks within my ankles and feet, um, you know, from the, the metacarpals and the, the, all the ankle joints, like a good 10 to 20 breaks all throughout um, my ankles. You know, I did a lot in motocross when I was a young kid you know, casing things and coming up short and, you know, different uh, leg injuries. I broke both my legs, uh, tibia and fibia, uh, knees going upward, um, you know, loads of ligament tears, damaged uh, joints. Um, You know, I shattered both the entire joints and my last injury in 2017. So ligament and bone um, damage in the knee joints. going up uh femurs um broken femurs shattered hips completely shattered pelvis um, unbelievable yeah six Go on, carry on, carry on. yeah six vertebrae in my back um no more than that actually um because i've done upper and lower vertebrae so like eight vertebrae in my back um you know shoulders completely both collarbones broken um shoulders torn out um dislocated um 
and then the biggest one for luckily i didn't do any humerus on my so the the main bicep bone um i died knock on wood haven't haven't done either one of those so that's i think those are the only two bones i haven't broken uh, there's still time though there's still time yeah. don't worry <laughs> i know so uh so i've got yeah both forearms and wrists and uh my wrist one was quite bad severed tendons and um that needed a, a wrist replacement because that was actually from uh 2007 we had a hell of a year. I've obviously been developing the Suzuki for however many years, five plus years from being uh, an awesome result for the team was getting into the top 15, which was like, you know, a great result for us at the time to, you know, getting the, the bike up to, a, you know, as competitive it was in 2007. Mm. Um, I'd finished all the preseason tests. Like I was on fire. I think I, I'm, think we finished up pretty much every one of the preseason tests in first going into 07 i malaysia i was first uh, spain i was first uh uh we went into qatar and i had i was quickest in qatar and then uh on the final day um i was on a quick lap and even though it was testing i didn't want to abort the lap but i was coming up on sylvain gantoli who was quite a bit slower at the time Anyways, he ended up, uh, it wasn't his fault, but uh, I tried to go up underneath him in the very fast right-handers, the guitar, went up on the inside of him and he just completely chopped my front end and I ended up having a, a over-the-top high side um, at like, a, I don't know, I think it was like 120, 30 mile an hour in those fast right-hand, left right-handers, yeah. Anyways, uh, ended up breaking my scaphoid. Um, and severing a tendon which was two weeks before the start of the the season after finishing first and every like i mean i was going into that year like and i mean i was i was i literally was putting every ounce of my energy whether it was sleep i mean i was doing everything i was told to do and like you know i went into that wanting to win the championship and then that happened uh, and not only that nikki i mean who i had great respect for for winning the championship was my rival at the time who had just won the championship the year before so i was like like a, you know that as a racer drove me to wanting to win the championship even more so anyways that happened two weeks before the start of the season and uh i went back to california to see my surgeon in between and he just said look you know it's a bad break it's a scaphoid you literally have two options you know, you can try and ride through it, ride through the pain. It's going to get worse, but, you know, you, you might be able to ride through it and your body might, you know, adapt or you're going to be out for, um, you know, at least, at least three months, like to, to, cause the tendon, they would have had to pin the tendon back and like, you know, it would have had to stayed still for at least like a, a good three months so I just said no there's no way there's no way I'm sitting out this season and uh, so I ended up racing the whole year with the with the with the broken wrist and so it took a few races to adapt to I still finished fourth in Qatar in the first yeah. round and um, and then was on the podium I don't know a couple races in in, in China but um, yeah it uh, it got progressively worse like really bad over the next couple of years and then I had no movement with it in 2010. And that's when I went to every 
surgeon I could find, um, literally all around Spain, Italy, UK, Australia, everywhere, until we found a surgeon in the US. Every one of them said that was it. I had to have my wrist fused and it was done. And then we found a surgeon in, um, in my, literally my, uh, my home state, in my hometown in San Diego, who was a professional football um, doctor for one of the main professional American football teams, who was just doing a, you know, a procedure that was, you know, completely state of the art and so forth that he had just performed on an American quarterback, uh, you know, in the football. And anyways, he ended up saying he could think he thought he could, uh, he could transform my wrist and get the movement back. And he did. It was amazing. Most amazing surgery. Um, and I pretty much have full movement in my wrist again, which was my throttle and breaking hand as well. And then, um, ended up referring hit that doctor because Nikki Hayden ended up having similar wrist issues from similar injury um, in 2013, a few years after. And I, I re referred him to the same doctor who did the same exact surgery on him and, and repaired his wrist as well, which was good. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's motorcycle race. And I was actually just talking to Cal um, Pretchlow this last weekend and uh you know, we were on the, cause he went out on the grid for the Moto2 race and, um, and we were walking back down pit lane together and I was like, Oh, how you doing, man? And he's like, Oh, I'm struggling, man. It's, uh, you know, it's rough at the moment. And I was like, he's like, and then first thing he said is, you know how it is. And I was like, trust me, man, I do. I mean, you're always riding with something mm. like when you're a professional racer you're always riding with some injury you know whether it's a lingering issue from the past or you know a new one from from before and um it does it wears you down you know having to ride with with those injuries but you know motorcycle racing i i wouldn't take it back honestly i wouldn't i was going to ask you that question and not yeah. asking a stupid question but you've gone through probably more surgeries than anyone I know, probably more breaks than anyone I know. You've had some horrendous injuries, like you've just explained. There aren't any regrets then? Is it like, no, well... No, not at no, all. Just... I, uh, I, I've had an amazing life, and, uh, you know, it's taken me to you know, some of the most amazing places in the world. And, you know, I... Uh, I, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to, to live through the, the heyday of racing. And so I was able to make some decent money at it. And, uh, you know, I, I made a living and, and got to do what I loved my entire life. And uh, sure, I'm paying for it now. And I will do when I'm older. And everyone says, oh, you know, it's, you know, you're going to get old one day. And, you know, you're going to regret it. But I'm in pain every morning when I wake up. But once I get moving, you know, the joints loosen up, everything starts, you know, getting back into uh, into a rhythm. So, you know, I just got to keep moving. And then, you know, like they say, body in motion stays in motion. You know, if I end up taking a day off and just, you know, laying around for a day, I'm literally like dying. So I've got to stay in motion. It keeps me active. And uh, no, it's um, it's why I also spend uh, the winters in California. So <laughs> it's not too cold back there. It's I, not I, a bad I, thing. Exactly. I, I, I don't think any of us would complain about complain about <laughs> spending a winter over there when you're stuck in it. I'm in the middle of summer here in Leeds, and it's absolutely chucking it down here. Yeah, exactly. So no, I told my wife like that was the part of the deal. Like you know, like because she's really close with her family here in the UK, and you know, working you know a, a work schedule where she still gets to spend. We still get a lot of spend a lot of time living over here in the UK, and. Uh, 
I said, you know, I'll work that out, you know, we'll work that out and I'll do that. But uh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, winters in California are a must, like, <laughs> yeah. like and, physically and mentally. But and, and <laughs> yeah. talking of, of staying physical and keeping moving, um, you were out in Austria last week on the Moto2 bike, weren't you? The team brought it out for you as a kind of little you know, uh, 20 years on for pretty much coming over to Europe in the first place. And you were out on the motor two bike with Joe. That was pretty cool. And you managed Looking to stick out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me, obviously. yeah, it was good. I was, I was nervous though at first. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, they, uh, they obviously, you know, they, they arranged the event and it was quite a cool little, little Did thing. You know? then, Did you know it was happening? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it was literally like only days before that it all got arranged so luckily you know we had everything sent over gear wise from that i had here in the uk and then alpine stars you know they're they're still a a really big supporter of mine still you know support me a lot and they uh they did everything got all the gear that i needed extra and um yeah so it was uh a cool thing man it was good to uh to get out on track i'd obviously never ridden a moto 2 bike but the fact that I only got two laps on the bike and, um, you know, they, they were expecting me to do a big stand up wheelie down the, down the front straight was a, uh, Oh, I was a little bit nervous about that. Cause like I said, you know, I'd never ridden a moto two bike, never knew anything about the power band, you know, getting the thing up just, you know, it's, it's something, you know, I've, all the bikes I've ever wheelied in the past and I knew stand-up wheelies have always been my thing. And, you know, it was always on a bike that I'd spent hundreds and hundreds of laps riding and hundreds of miles riding. And you get to know a bike quite well after that much, you know, riding on it. So, you know, the fact that I'd never ridden a Moto2 bike, we only had one flying, you know, run down the front straightaway and they expected a big stand-up wheelie that run was a bit nerve wracking and uh i almost made a fool out of myself and backed out of it completely and uh yeah we came out of the last turn for the first lap and um joe obviously got it up and you know started to stand it on the back tire and i was like all right i've got to do this and so i I went to go for it i was in third gear came out of the last turn quite slow as it was so i wasn't that high in the revs so i went to go and get it up on the rear tire went gassed it like I normally would with the GP bike in the past and the thing didn't do anything. It just sat there. <laughs> I sat there yanking it and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to look like an idiot here. And so I was like, all right, I had like, I had a split decision. I came to the crossroads, either look like an idiot trying to get this thing up on the rear tire and possibly crash doing it or just go by flying, you know, just go by and say, screw it and get in the tuck and, you know, to still look cool, just going through the revs. Anyways, I was like, oh, I got to do it. And then just went for it and just literally gave it a handful of throttle and stood it up and it was natural. Once I got her on the rear tire, it was good and managed to uh, piss Joe off in the uh, the process because I ended up having a longer stand-up wheelie than his. <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> he you, was you out wheeling you out wheeling Joe that was so cool man I didn't know you'd only had two laps of respect because that is yeah, difficult yeah so I had no idea about power band balance point or anything and um no it was good though I mean it's uh just being on a GP bike obviously spending um that much time on him in the in the career and that I uh and having like I said the amount of testing you know I'm 
uh, the amount of testing we had on the GP bikes back then, you know, we used to do, I mean, th uh, thousands and thousands of laps. Yeah, it was too testing. much back then, wasn't yeah. it? It was a fact to ride it. It was actually a bit stupid. The season would finish and then you'd go to like a four-day test somewhere. Then the week after you do another four-day test. And yeah. The week after you do another four-day test. The, the no, money that would be spent. testing um, non-stop. Yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, you were four-day test in Malaysia, four-day test in Australia, then back to Spain for a four-day test. And this is just after you've completed the season. And then you go home for, you know, three or four weeks. And then January, you're straight into Malaysia again. I mean, Malaysia was my second home in Grand Prix back then. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, going back to it, the amount of time that I'd spent, like I said, on the, the GP bikes, um, just getting on that rigid, you know, GP style chassis, like instantly felt like a, a like a home to me. Like it just felt so much more comfortable than I've ever felt on any any superbike in the past. Like it just really felt like a bike that I knew, and it, it really reminded me actually of the eight uh, hundreds, you know, that we ever mm. raced and obviously back in in the Suzuki days and stuff. So it's uh, no, I was a, a nice bike. I mean, they're. Uh, Nice smooth power band as well with the uh, the Triumph engine. It's got a really nice power band through it as well, which was cool. But no, it was awesome getting to ride. I'm looking forward to the uh, the end of the year where they're going to send one of those back to uh, California, and uh, I'm going to get some time on it. You know, back in California, which would be fun riding with some kids back there. Oh, because yeah, you're doing the academy, aren't you, with the American racing team? And you yeah, said, actually, I think I saw an interview uh, you did with MotoGP where you said actually you're doing all the mentoring and you're working with Joe and you know that he's got talent, but actually even riding a bike for two laps, just to help you understand where, you know, where he's at or where the bike is at in just in some way. So that now, you know, when you're speaking to him about, you, you see him out on track and you see, you know, the way he looks like on the bike and it would just help you in your job of making sure that, you know, he's already had two poles and a podium this year, but you know, that, that win's not going to be far away, is it? No, definitely not. And, um, you know, any, the more experience I could have with the machine and, you know, knowing it personally is always going to help and, and be more of a benefit, but it's, uh, no, it's definitely not far away. I mean, there's some still, there's some improvements that Joe's got to work on himself, especially when we get to the more stop and go style tracks, like, you know, Austria, Austria going into it was uh, a track he was really dreading, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, he, uh, He's had the struggles there in the past and, you know, he, uh, I mean, Jerez was just a one-off situation. I mean, honestly, if COVID had never happened and Jerez went as normal, Jerez would have been a completely different race for the guy, um, you know, because he had a solid, you know, top 10 result there and he was consistently doing good lap times in the test prior to going to Qatar. And, you know, Qatar is obviously a more fast-blowing circuit, you know, we got a good setup there and, you know, everything kind of worked in his favor there. And it's a track that he's obviously really strong at and enjoyed. But, um, yeah, Jerez was just uh, a disaster, unfortunately, you know, pro after COVID because, you know, he had spent, however, you know, five months off of the bike going to a track that, you know, he knew wasn't his strongest yet is some pretty much the strongest for and most ridden for a lot of the mm. European kids that are all in mm. the championship. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of hurt his, his confidence and going into it. I don't think I, he knew he probably didn't do as much as he should have and could have done 
not only that, he had a big crash on an R6 not long, not long before he left to go over to Europe, damaging, um, you know, I think his wrist and that quite bad. And so his confidence wasn't at the highest. So, you know, unfortunately, Jerez was just uh, a disaster. And, you know, he went into that with the preconceived notion that he had to achieve the same exact result that he had gotten in Qatar. And he had that expectation on holding on top of him as well which wasn't a good thing. So, you know, I think he, uh, it was just a downward spiral. He couldn't get the setting right. He was struggling. And I mean, he was literally only off by, you know, a few tenths, but in a championship that tight and that competitive, it's, it means the world. Like, I mean, that's the difference between, you know, a top five and, you know, a top 20 result. That's yeah. Hero or zero. I, yeah. I, I did a chat with Joe earlier and he said how, it's the, it is the toughest championship in the world, and and I agree. And you you guys have ridden in some tough places, but it is, I mean, two tenths of a second covering top fourteen to go through into qualifying, and you've got to have that done by Saturday morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 and it's uh, you know these guys don't have a lot of testing, and I mean it's uh, it's a matter of going out, and you have basically Friday morning to go and get the bike into a good setting. You know, and uh, the guys that are running the best and the most competitive are the guys that have a solid base setup straight from the beginning and just have to tweak the bike minorly here and there to get, you know, and adapt and, you know, get the thing going to whatever circuit they're at. But, uh, you know, it's already starting qualifying procedures going into Friday afternoon because they have to be in that top 14 to get into Q1 and, you know, or Q2 or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, they don't have a lot of time to, to set the bike up and it's a matter of just going out and, and making it happen straight away, right in the beginning. Hopper, I'm really intrigued to, I want some stories off you because you was a wilder man. All right. Yeah. Throughout your, throughout, throughout your career, you worked hard, but you bloody played hard as well. That's for damn Sure. Now I know you've got a book coming out pretty. I know you've got a book coming out pretty soon, and I've already heard some uh, some stories that sound amazing. I'm so looking forward to that, by the way. Um, but can you give us a, can you give us a couple of tasters, some of the uh, behind the scenes, what you got up to? Is there anything you can tell us? Is there anything you can uh, tell us? What the what, without the lawyers? Getting yeah, yeah, that, well, yeah, exactly. No, well, I've. Um, you know, I've had, I've had, unfortunately, quite a few legal issues, you know, away from the racetrack that, uh, that I've, you know, had to, to deal with in the, in the past, obviously, you know, substance abuse between alcohol and, you know, unfortunately, painkillers and, uh, you know, really strong painkillers, um, you know, uh, yeah, so I mean, I obviously... Sorry, sorry John, to, if, if, I mean, if you're happy to talk about it, but... For most um, British people, we don't really understand too well the like getting addicted to painkillers and stuff like that. It seems more of an American thing that happens because yeah. probably the strength of the tablets that you can get over there in the US compared to what we get. I mean, I don't know anyone who's like addicted to anodine or you know paracetamol, but no, I mean I, no, I, I mean we're talking like strong painkillers, and I mean mm. you know stuff that. Um, Oh, I mean, I, and it's, you know, something and an addiction, I wouldn't worse, you know, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it's, uh, you know, we're talking, they're painkillers that are, you know, 
20, 30 times stronger than heroin, you know, and that's, that's what it is. It's opiate based painkillers right. that, uh, you know, and it's, it's something, you know, I never initially ever took to, to go and just get high and, and, you know, take to, to, to get high. But, you know, the amount of time that I had taken them over throughout my career, um, to just either heal from an injury and I would take them so that I could train harder um, and I could fight through the pain, um, you know, and it was easier to get myself back to a, a, a level of competing at, you know, at the highest level in the world by using And, you know, sometimes I had to get through them uh, in that regard, but yeah, it's uh it was funny, like alcohol, like everything. It, uh, you know, up until around 2007, alcohol was always, and I mean, I never drank like one or two beers ever. I mean, I was like, it's like everything I've done in my life. I am like full throttle or nothing at all. Like I was either completely dry and would just stay away from alcohol or I would go fucking flat out. Like, I mean, just full throttle and I would get wasted anywhere and anytime, normally every Sunday night after every race weekend, I'd get hammered, whether I was, you know, drowning the sorrows of a bad weekend or celebrating a great weekend. I'd just get pissed up and do stupid shit. I mean, the paddock was a fun place though. I mean, especially with, you know, the likes of Colin Edwards and, you know, all the other, you know, crazy, uh, people back then. Um, you know, it was a fun paddock to, uh, to be in. And, you know, there was normally a lot of parties within the paddock and getting up to some, some funny, stupid things in the paddocks. And yeah, it's, uh, whatever, whatever happened with Max Biaggi was well, with Max Biaggi's car. Who was involved? Yeah, in, see, I got blamed that? for that. <laughs> it was Curtis, wasn't it? I got blamed for that. Max Biaggi's car is little, you know, Smart car, wasn't it? Car. Like, oh, he had it all done up as well. With it, it looked just like his helmet. And the number three it, on the side. And I yeah, it. it was a little cheesy. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. And uh, <laughs> so, what, what happened? What happened to this car? I don't know. This so car anyway, see, I was I had pulled a girl that night, so I was in my I was in my fucking motorhome, getting lucky all like all evening. <laughs> So I wasn't even like, so I, so, so, I, I so, what, so what did you do after the first minute? Come on. <laughs> go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, anyway, I think it was a Rizla girl at the time, which was, um, yeah, I think it was in Magello. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, having a, a not a quiet night in, but a, a more relaxed, well, not even relaxed, I guess, but I was having a night in my motorhome, let's say. And, uh, you know, the party obviously, you know, was going Sorry, on between Curtis Roberts and, uh, all those guys and Colin Edwards. And anyways, Kenny was there for a little bit junior and, um, you know, Ke Curtis Roberts got completely hammered. He ended up stealing a cop's bike that was there, <laughs> like took the cop's bike literally and took it for a lap around the track on the Sunday evening um you know the cop obviously being a big fan of moto gp you know he was quite pissed when he found his bike was gone initially but then when curtis came rolling back up on it um you know he was actually all right about it and you know he didn't do anything but uh it started getting crazier from there and everyone was just kind of you know being a bit wild and anyways 
we wake up and uh, someone came knocking on my door on the motorhome that night. And they're like, man, you got to come see this. You got to come look. I go outside and Max Biaggi's smart car is literally on its roof. And they're sat oh there on its roof, like <laughs> scratching the hell out of the paint because it's on its roof. <laughs> And just spinning it like back and forth. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys. And I, Ruben Joust was involved in it as well. I think he played a part in it. But uh, yeah, anyways, freaking, we go into, uh, to, it was always a back to back where we went to Mugello straight into Catalonia mm. right after. And uh, instantly, the second I got into the paddock, into uh, Barcelona, I think on the Wednesday or Thursday, I was called straight to the ERDA office and straight to the, the commission. Well, what have you done? And instantly, I was blamed for all of it. Like, this was my fault. And as if I'd solely done it. Because I was quite the troublemaker, obviously, within the paddock. And if stuff went wrong, I was normally the first to blame and I'll be the first to admit it but that in that instance I wasn't and uh and they didn't believe it they had no they had no intention of believing it and finally I had to go to Colin I said Colin man you you got to admit this like that I'm not going down for this like I didn't do that and uh and anyways they ended up speaking to him and I think I'm not even sure if they ever did admit it but that was one of the things I mean what did Mike say Oh, he was, he was, I, he was pissed about it. Obviously he was, he was emotional, but. Uh, did you get on with Max, John? I, I, you know what? I did. I was one of the only writers that, that did actually like, I, and I did, I said, I still do. And I mean, I, I like Max. He was, you know, he, he got a tough stick from, you know, Rossi, obviously hating on him for all those years and all the Rossi fans kind of immediately just went, turned on him for being a rival of Valentino. And, uh, and you know, he, he was, he wasn't the best guy as far as marketing. And he did some silly things like, you know, about the whole, what was it? The Claudia Schiffer thing that he rumored he was dating her. And yeah. And uh, he'd done some silly stuff, but he was an all right guy. I mean, I, I get along with him now. He's, he's a good guy, but um he was why he was actually one of the few. I'd always see him and, you know, we weren't buddies or anything, but I always saw him at Anaheim in, in California, always spoke to him, even when we were racing together. But um, he was a dickhead when I first came into to Grand Prix. And uh, it was funny. He was one of the ones I was told to watch out for because he would, you know, intentionally shove it up the inside and knock you offline and knock you off track when you're a newcomer. And uh, he did that to me regularly. Uh, I mean, there was a few times he fucking T-boned me and, and knocked me off track coming by me. And uh, and that, that that pissed me off a bit. But, you know, anyways, I'd he's probably have done the same. He's definitely mellowed out, hasn't he, actually, as, uh, as Max over the years. But, yeah, John, I mean, those, those Grand Prix days, you came in. Well, everyone seems to forget. You were young when you came in in 2002. You were just eight, just 18. And yeah, I just turned 18. Yeah, and John Aldrich, it was, wasn't it? Who, who helped with Peter Clifford and, and got you over in the first place? Because you, you rode the 500s. People sort of seem to forget you bridged that gap. That yeah. Across the cross. Yeah, the I, I was one of the few that you were uh, so young. Got so to race a, a 500 at 18 years old. Still one of the, well, still the youngest ever. 
uh, rider to compete a full season in the, well, to race MotoGP in the first place in the premier class and compete a full season, um, which like just now it sounds mind boggling. Like you, you just wouldn't see it now. Like I literally raced two years of professional super sport racing in domestic championship straight into mm. the premier class, like 500 Grand Prix, which, um, you know, it was, it was a big steep learning curve, but, uh, I mean, Ike Laquona is not far off now and he's done two or three years in Moto2 because he came, yeah, late, you know, out of supermoto or that sort of thing. But still, you know, we're talking about 18 and you're chucked in a shark's pit. Well, yeah, it's to go also it, it, to go directly from a domestic championship yeah. where you've only done two years into what is the what is MotoGP without doing the Moto Two, Moto yeah, Three, you exactly. know, exactly, or anything in World Superbike or World Supersport or anything yeah. like on two strokes on five yeah, two, two strokes against the nine nineties as well. Yeah, and this is a bike that like loads of super I mean, proven, you know world superbike stars that you know were you know competitive world superbike riders you know struggled to to get a grasp on i mean he's who i replaced was yeah. haga on the team and um and so yeah it uh it was a steep learning curve but i mean i luckily spent a lot of time um just riding track days and uh and club races purely on the bike i mean i let's say i'd only raced two two years on on the four strokes but prior to that from 12 years old i was on a 125 gp bike an rs 125 unfortunately i could only ride once a month one day um a month um every month uh at a track willow springs in north of los angeles and uh, up until the age of 15 literally that is the only track i ever rode a road race bike on um was willow springs and then i did the aprilia cup challenge in uh 1999 at 15 um ended up winning that and then uh and then that was when I got the ride to ride for Allrich, because he he supplied the whole ride for me to do the Aprilia Cup Challenge, supplied the bike, everything, and then it was more of kind of a tryout for me to ride for his main team on the you know Suzuki um, in 750 Supersport, which I won the championship next year, and then again in the Formula Extreme the following year, and then that's when like him and Peter Clifford came together, and Peter was like, oh, you know, we're looking for a a young American, you know, we want to try and bring one over. And, you know, Ulrich was good friends with Peter at the time and said, you know, we uh, think we got a guy, you know, he's, he's quite young and, but I think he'd be all right. And um, that was it. I mean, I literally tested, um, I tested the 500 Grand Prix bike. I mean, I, I know I rose, raced it at 18, but I actually tested it at Bruno when I was 16 um, that first year in, in 16, there was a test after the Grand Prix weekend in Bruno in 2000 and uh they sent me over and I just thought it was like a just a one-off like PR event like you know but I think they wanted to test how I was at that time and I remember going there and I was like up against you know everyone was on two strokes 500s at that time 
And uh, I remember riding it and just thinking, like, what the hell am I doing out here? Because um, I was on track with a lot of the guys at the time. And I remember Tetsuya Harada, I think it was, came by me. And he was waving his arms everywhere because I was in his way. And, uh, you know, he was all pissed off. But, uh, you know, two years later, when I went there for the first full season, it was good. I had a lot of doubters, obviously. One of my biggest critics who, who I mean, he he was no shortage in you know talking about his doubt in me in the media and everything was Matt Maladin at the time I mean he said I was going to be a joke and how pathetic it was going to be and it was crazy um I had an option um to basically race for any one of the superbike teams in the paddock in AMA for the following season I had the choice I could have went to you know Kawasaki Yamaha Honda, all of them, I, I had an option to race for the superbike teams, but the only team I wanted to ride for was Yoshimura Suzuki. And at the time, um, there was a team manager there at Yoshimura Suzuki. I think his name was Mal Harris. Yeah, it was Mal Harris. Big, you know, disgusting guy. I hated him. Anyways, he, uh, he, uh, he hated me. He hated my tattoos. He hated my earrings. He hated my image. That was the only team that I had no option, even though I'd just won two um, Suzuki championships for Suzuki. Um, that was the only superbike ride that I didn't have an option for. And had Yoshimura Suzuki given me an option to race that following year, I would have stayed and, and raced Yoshimura Suzuki the following year. But because of that guy and him is disliking me and not liking my tattoos and my earrings and so forth, I just said, fuck you, and 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 went and uh, decided to go and make the jump. And that's when, obviously, Matt, uh, Matt Maladin was extremely vocal, saying how pathetic I was going to do and I was going to be a joke. And so I had a lot of doubters and other people and a lot of people saying how bad I was going to do. But um, I think I proved them wrong. We had a pretty successful year. I mean, obviously, it was uh, – two kind of different championships between two strokes and four strokes. I don't think they really understood how uncompetitive the two stroke was going to be versus the four stroke. <clears throat> but, um, you know, there were some tracks where it was slightly competitive. And I mean, that the Williams had a hell of a race one, one at one place on Phillip it. Island. Uh, Phillip Island. Yeah, I think I think, um, I think, uh, was Gaz McCoy might've been up somewhere towards the front at the same time. Yeah. Saxon ring was another one where, Olivier Jacques and that but you did uh, during that year I yeah remember. but a few a couple times that year I ended up being top two-stroke mm. against you know I mean I'm, we're talking the likes of you know Loris Caparossi Alex Barrow Shinin Nakano you know proven yeah. race winners and you know constant front-running podium finishers and you know being able to finish ahead of those guys and be top two-stroke on certain occasions was almost like a win to me that year uh, you know and it obviously got me the factory MotoGP Suzuki ride the following year, which was like the biggest fuck you to that Mel Harris said <laughs> AMA. So that was like, that was one of the best feelings I've ever had in, uh, in, in racing was just being able to do that. And then, you know, to, to prove the naysayers wrong and Maladin. And it was funny that following year for my first ever MotoGP test on the Suzuki Grand Prix bike, um 
Yoshimira Suzuki were over because they were testing in Malaysia because Suzuki had rented the track. So they brought Yoshimira on board to use the testing time. And it was funny. So they were on, I was on track <clears throat> with Maladin and, um, and Spies at the time. Well, Spies I was, I was friends with. But Maladin, it was so good getting on track with him, being on the MotoGP bike and being able to shove it underneath him and pass him was just, oh, it was like, that was fun. And given his current accusations, I, uh, I don't feel so bad for hating him all these years. So, you know, we'll see. No, I think, I, John, I think there's a long list of people on, on the hating Matt Maladin. And like, like you said, with what's happened recently, yeah. I think everyone, everyone's got a reason for that. He wasn't a nice person to race with, because obviously I raced with him out in America. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't a nice person socially, was he? No, you know, never. If you hung out never. with him, he was just a horrible human being, really. No, it's he was just, just horrible and just nasty. really mean. Just, just yeah, mean. Nasty. Yeah. Just mean. Mean-hearted and just, I mean, you know, you get the ones that are the competitive, nasty, you know, you get like, you know, doing and those guys, you know, they didn't make friends. They didn't but it was because they had a competitive job and they just wanted to be the best. And, you know, they decided that friends was going to maybe slow them down, you know, and that, that, you know, yeah. I can understand. And, you know, that's the kind of, you know, dedication it takes sometimes. But whereas Maladin, he was just a, a he went out of his way to be mean to loads yeah. of people and to be yeah. horrible and, and just say horrible shit all the time. And it, yeah. And just not someone, you know, I ever, ever liked i i i can't say i've ever respected him but uh yeah unfortunately you know i um yeah it's just given those re recent accusations i don't feel so bad for eight and all those years well the, but, lawyers, you know. the lawyers are saying uh let's just move on um uh, yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not gavin we're not saying anything we're just oh, saying no. he's a dick that's, all. Yeah, that's right so, exactly that's what i said but right. the lawyers were just saying let's move on so um yeah I'm, everyone Everyone's innocent until proven guilty, and I, I believe that as well. So we'll see. Um, I've got to um, ask, though, uh, John, about um, now. I, there's something we spoke earlier in a takeover for Two Wheels for Life. And I remember um, one thing you just said, and it struck me really, was how the feeling that you got seeing Joe on the podium. Because someone asked um, us, uh, asked you, what you know can you recreate the feeling that you get from riding a 500 that kind of thing but you said how sweet the feeling was just to be involved in this whole process of getting joe roberts you know competitive at the top and helping out but to see him standing on the podium what what kind of feeling that was for someone you know you've, you've had your ups and downs and everything and all these things that we've talked about already that, that there is enjoyment still to be gained from it yeah no there is man massively um and the like I said, that satisfaction and that that rewarding feeling I got from seeing Joe succeed and being, you know, named by him as a big credit for for that success and helping him reach that full potential was hugely rewarding. Um, you know, and it was something I, I mean, I've done it, you know, I was obviously you know, quite wild. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, a big party guy and this and that. But one thing that I've always done my entire life was, you know, try and help um, younger riders. And, you know, I'd done it, you know, all my life, you know, and, uh, 
the one thing literally, I mean, my family, my dad was a, was a lorry driver and, you know, my mom, you know, when she wasn't raising four kids, she would, you know, hold on to a job just to be able to pay our rent, you know, and my family gave up everything for me, you know, to do my racing and travel the country. And there were so many times where we'd be traveling cross country and we were at races, you know, traveling, you know, we'd be on the other side of America and my, my mom and dad would run out of gas money. We'd have to call, they'd have to call family members to wire us money just so that we could make it home, you know, and, uh, and my dad could get back to work on, you know, Monday morning. So, yeah, I mean, we, uh, I know what it's like from that side. And, you know, I think that always, you know, gave me a little bit of drive and extra drive, um, you know, coming from that background and, you know, without the help of multiple people throughout my career, you know, throughout from the beginning stage of my road racing career, um, you know, at the age of nine, there's no way my family could have ever had supported me to do road racing, you know, with the cost of, you know, Grand Prix bikes, the 125 GP bikes and, you know, fees and everything. There's just no way I could have ever done road racing, you know, with, with my family salary at the time. So, without the help of multiple people, there's no way I would have ever dreamed of being a professional road racer. And so, you know, being able to give back and, you know, do certain things, you know, throughout my entire career, you know, even but way back then I was helping out young kids buying bikes and, you know, and, and supporting young riders. Um, I was actually supporting a, a competitor of Joe back. Um, it was a young kid who used to race against Joe and it was funny, it recently came up, there's a picture of Joe, he's only like 10, 9 or 10 years old. And I was in Grand Prix at the time, but I was at the track helping his rival. And, uh, and Joe came up for a picture and I took a picture with Joe. And uh, it's quite a funny, you know, yeah. scenario. But um, yeah, that, that's what I was there for was I was helping one of Joe's rivals who, you know, he was, uh, he was a, a he had some issues uh, with some mental issues and some, some birth defects, but he was still a really good rider. And um, his dad, you know, didn't have a lot of money and um, you know, I, I paid and helped him get his bikes and races and so forth. But anyways, yeah. So it's always been something that's uh, that's been a passion of mine, being able to give back and help and, and, you know, being able to start this new Academy over in the U S to help kids you know, that are in similar positions and, you know, may not have the means to be able to do it themselves um, is a good thing. And, you know, the fact that I'm able to help hands on with Joe and be able to offer, you know, immediate advice to, to and offer some of that experience and knowledge. And, you know, unfortunately, I've learned all the what not to do's and, mm. you know, I had to go and, and learn it firsthand, um, you know, the things that worked and the things that obviously didn't work. But, uh, you know, it's still a hell of a lot of experience and knowledge. I've ridden every championship there is in the, in the world, uh, major championship and uh, every type of bike that you could imagine. So, you know, being able to pass on that experience, knowledge and so forth from all over, all over those years is, um, is oh, something I, I really enjoy and something I... I love doing. I mean, I, I like I said, the the feeling I got from seeing Joe reach his full potential and seeing him after knowing all winter long that he had no shortage of talent and that mm. there's no reason why he shouldn't be a front runner that year. Whereas, you know, he hadn't even been remotely in the top ten prior to that. 
um, for the first two seasons, you know, going into that, knowing that he could be a front runner and be able to achieve it. And like just the stuff we worked on all through the winter, dirt tracking, motocrossing and everything. And then seeing it happen right then and there, right at the beginning of the season was just amazing. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, it's great. It's great for us to to see that. We need an American. We need it for the mm. championship, don't we, Neil? We need... Because uh, it brings so much to the championship in terms of the characters we've had over the years. And Johnny just one of uh, the characters we've had from the States. But, you know, it's not an easy way to do things. When we've had Brad Binder on here, you know, coming from South Africa. Yeah. You know, it's the same sort of thing. It's a, it's a, You're in a, in a bear pit coming from a, a, another planet, effectively. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's how it is. And, you know, unfortunately, you literally have to sacrifice your life to, to do it. I mean, you have to abandon your family and friends, everyone you grew up with, you know, your so-called golden years, you know, in America, you know, you're, you're taught from, you know, an early age that, you know, the best years of your life are, you know, when you watch movies and TV and everything, it's literally ingrained in you that, you know, the best years of your life are your high school football years and your college years, you know, your party crazy years. Yeah. Spring you know, break. All that. Spring break and all this. <laughs> yeah. It's literally ingrained in you in America that those are the best years of your life. And, uh, and you literally have to abandon that. Like, you know, you're not around for any of it. And you have to abandon all your friends, everyone you grew up with and everything. You know, you have to sacrifice that to to be able to achieve your dream of racing in the World Championship in MotoGP. Because, you know, it's a lot different for, say, the Europeans. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, they're on an hour and a half flight. 70% of the year and they're sleeping in their own bed on Sunday night around their family and all their friends and so forth. Whereas, you know, when you're American, when you leave in March, you know, in February or whenever, you're gone. You're you're gone until November. Mm-hmm. You don't see your family and friends until, you know, November time, until the end of the year. And, uh, you know, it's a lot easier now. I mean, back then we didn't even have, you know, Skype wasn't even a thing. And so, we, I mean, I couldn't, we literally, I mean, luckily we had phones. Um, yeah, mobile phones. Yeah. In the, just in the, about. <laughs> just about, like the, these crazy international flip phones. And luckily I had a deal from a cell phone sponsorship at the time, Amp Mobile. Amp, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, the they, uh, so I got free phones so I could actually, because the rate to call back was insane. Like I used to spend, I mean, literally like, Shit, like thirty thousand a year Whoa. in cell phone bills back to wow. America. Like, how? Yeah, literally. Like that's because it used to be so expensive back then. I used to spend between twenty and thirty thousand a year in cell phone bills back to the U.S. every year. Yeah, but Gav, Gav's also had similar bills, but it's always them chat lines of them. Yeah. Bills, you know. <laughs> Do you want to know what I'm wearing? Do you want to know that what I'm doing me. now? Yeah, and I hate it. I hate it when they ha- when the chap hangs up on you on the other end. <laughs> yeah, well, the babe station, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, right, we better let you go, John. We've taken up far too much of your time, but we just fascinated listening to all the stories and that. And I know you have actually been keeping a diary, haven't you? Or you've you've written down a lot of your stories. You've got yeah, yeah. No, there's a there's a book coming out, and I mean, trust me, I'm not holding out i mean there's a lot of stories and especially from 
my most dysfunctional year, 2008. That's like uh, everything will be revealed. Um, you know, it's, I can't uh, wait. it's, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, stuff. And I mean, a lot of people think they know the stories, but fuck, they don't know the half of it. <laughs> See, oh my God. I mean, I know, I know the, the half of it, maybe, or not even that, maybe 10% of it, you know, but. Yeah, but I mean, it, it was uh, what you read in the media. I mean, a lot of it was true that was said, especially in 2008. Mazzano was a really bad, oh, that was a bad time for me. Uh, Mazzano 2008 was, oof, that was rough, but uh, yeah. I uh, ended up missing the entire Friday. Um, but uh, yeah, I ended up, you know, a couple years in really bad patches and uh, yeah, ended up going to rehab in uh, 2010, 2009, into 2009 winter and, uh, and, you know, never looked back since. So, which we're all pleased for because we've all, we all enjoy you your personality which has never changed and your who you are and glad that you're able to to now find joy or find happiness you mm. know working with joe and getting some success out there and i think you're making a great team at the moment and we're all pleased for you as well you know that it's uh, yeah no thank you because yeah. we know we've heard now how you know tough you've had it how many injuries you've had to go through but also we know that you're a genuinely uh, top man who uh, yeah just wants to just wants to be successful so yeah yeah we, yeah, all, exactly. we, we all wish you well John we certainly no do, it's great no and it just, no and, and, and British public have always been uh, you know my my biggest you know supporters and biggest fans especially you know after racing in the you know British Superbike Championship for as mm. many years and yeah, it's always, uh, they're the best race fans in the world, the British public. I mean, they, uh, you know, you got to love them. So it's, uh, no, I love being here. And um, yeah, hopefully. Apart from, uh, apart from in winter. Apart yeah, exactly. From winter. No, it, yeah. That's just it. And that's, but I just, because I physically can't do it. I'd literally be in bed rest for, for the winter if I spent a winter here. And not only that, I mean, oh. It getting dark at like 3 p.m. Oh, and <laughs> yeah. oh, it feels like it's getting dark now, and it's only like half three as well. So, I yeah. know, I did. John, we, we better let you go. Seriously, we've got to let you get on. We're taking up far too much of your time anyway. We appreciate it as always yep. and love chatting to you. You take care and uh, wish you all the very best. And we'll see you at a track hopefully soon. Yep. When we get yeah, hopefully. definitely. Hopefully, yeah, you guys will be there and live in part of the crew. So, no, we'll look forward to seeing you guys and thank you. Appreciate Top it. Man. Cheers, John. Thanks for your time. Cheers, Cheers John. Guys. Take, Take care, care guys. Thank you. Oh, hey. You know what? You want to put your arm around John sometimes and just say, yeah. oh, you have been through it, but still you've come out the other side, don't you, with John? Yeah, I'm he's not... still a relatively young man as well. He's 37 years old, yeah. but because everything happened so young, he's had this monster career, hasn't he? You know, done everything, like you said, racing every championship. I like what he did been incredi- with monster, monster, monster career. <laughs> yeah, monster. Yeah, because he's always he, in back by then. He was well, like no, the actually, original. He was the original. Well, actually, he was the original right? Red Bull because he started with oh, Red yeah, Bull, true. if you think about it, when yeah, it was... Yeah. 17 on that um the wcm yeah you know the, when he took harger's ride that was red bull but then yeah after, straight after that he was like yeah almost the first monster athlete and he just fit the mold 
Yeah. Because it, it was just wide open in everything he did. So, you know, partying, racing, personality, crashing. But what's not to like about him? I cannot wait for this book. I think it will be the best motorcycle autobiography I've read. And I've read some good ones over I've, the years. I've, I've read some got, crap ones. I've just got shakies. I'm looking forward to that. Because I reckon there'll be a bit of a crossover in a couple of the stories. Because they, yeah. they were good pals were good back buddies, in the day. Yeah. I remember one at testing in Barcelona, which I've got. I'm not going to try and uh, give away anything of the books. I haven't got through it yet. So, uh, But uh, yeah, I expect some crossover. But hey, look, uh, Joe Roberts is already saying that he's working well with him. And they've such similar backgrounds the two of them and I'm, I'm pleased that Joe's got someone in his corner in Moto2 that's done what John's done where John's had the success he's had the horrible lows as he talked mm. to us about and I'm so glad that he's honestly I'm glad that he's here to tell us about yeah. those sorts of things because you know you could have lost him to you know substance abuse as he said and that kind of thing so yeah yeah it is it is great and and uh, an amazing character really that we've got in our sport yeah, well, the paddock. We said we said we've said this before, actually, um, on BT Sport. The paddock's better for having John Hopkins in it. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Without being cheesy, it is. So, mm, isn't it? It's a better yeah. place. He's is yeah. uh, is a proper character. And Max Biaggi won't be able to sleep at night in his motorhome. <laughs> uh, I said I'd give away a hashtag, didn't I? For yeah, so oh, yeah. Could, hashtag Hopper, hashtag Hopper. There we are. Right. So stick that in a retweet of this episode. Whether it's yeah. a YouTube tweet or whether it's the, and you um, win you you win a night with Gav, is that right? You said yeah, you'll you'll give full body massage. Go on, show us show us the swag that you stole from Triumph. Don't tell UK Triumph, but yeah, yeah, we have we've got we've got some Moto Two gear basically. Yeah, it's a really um, nice kit. It's a really really nice kit. There's a there's a cap, and there's a, a t-shirt that kind of thing. So we'll send that to you if you uh, just help us basically get the message out there for the podcast at the same time and you get some free gear. Way, what's not to win, win. About it? Uh, Right, um, have we talked enough about what happened last week? Uh, maybe we save that. Maybe, so. we, maybe next week. Yeah, let's save that. Let's, we, save, let's that. save that. I know that. You're, you're busy today as well, aren't I'm, you? I'm you're doing, doing loads, of, loads of interviews. Two Wheels for Life. Exactly. Insta. So, uh, yeah. Well done, by the way, Gav, for doing all that. Oh, it's uh, it's it's just uh, rattling through. It's just a busy day. It's just a busy day. But yeah, it's not, I won't be doing anything else. Look how dark it is here compared to where you are. Honestly, yeah. I can just see the rain pouring down. So my dog's probably having a terrible, terrible day having to sit inside in this. So uh, anyway, right. Um, we'll yeah. What what we'll do next week? We will. Uh, we might have another interview for, but we'll probably just have a catch up episode. Talk about all the goings on in MotoGP because there's so many. Yeah. All the gossip. Them at the top yeah. And uh, loads to chat about. Again, uh, we appreciate your support. Um, please like, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Uh, they all help as well. Leave a review on what, whatever. You know what I mean. Leave comments. That's what we like. We like to see your comments. Yeah. Some, some comments as well. And uh, don't any of them say how Neil got it right on the last lap because he's already had too many of those. And look at him. No, he's sat no, in no. his throne. He didn't used to have that chair, and he ordered one after Sunday. He rang up and said, Ikea, Ikea, can I have a chair that looks like a throne, please? TK Maxx, what? Yeah. Uh, right, so right. Uh, we'll be back soon. Cheers, Neil. Cheers, Gav. Love you, man. See ya. Bye. Thank you. Ciao, ciao.